Mighty, mighty sweet, mighty sweet, mighty sweet. With shoes and stockings on her feet. Oh, it's coming out tonight. Oh, H, 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 coming out tonight. Coming out tonight, coming out tonight. H, 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 coming out tonight. Death by the light of the moon. Now that's some nifty harmonizing, boys. Why don't we all gather round? Time to pull up a seat by the fire. We've got our internet friends here for a special session, a Bitcoin white paper lecture. It's a significant day, you see, marking the 15th anniversary of the day that sharp cookie Satoshi Nakamoto released that gem. Sometimes it's best to revisit the basics, and the Bitcoin white paper, well, that's the groundwork of it all, so I aim to take you through it step by step. So around about 2008, the housing market was in shambles and the economy was teetering on the edge like a drunken cowboy on a bucking bronco. But then a sharp dude named Satoshi Nakamoto come around and said, there's too much dang trust in the system. And he was right. But he didn't just keep it to himself, no siree. He wrote it all down in a document called the Bitcoin White Paper and shared it with the world. The abstract of this here paper starts by talking about a real neat idea for making payments online without having to rely on no banks. See, the problem with online payments is making sure that folks ain't cheating by spending the same money twice. But this paper proposes a solution using a system where folks can make payments directly to each other, without the need for no middleman. Ain't that something? But, but, but Pinto, how can fo folks spend their money twice? That d d don't even make sense. Well now, Curly, it's called the double spending problem, and it's like trying to use the same dollar bill to buy two different things at the same time. It just ain't right. You see, digital media is a funny thing, because it's just a bunch of ones and zeros that can be copied and duplicated with no effort at all. Kind of like fiat money, if you catch my drift. Now, when it comes to making payments online, things can get real tricky if you don't have a trusted third party like a bank to keep things in check. See, without that third party, there's no way to ensure that digital money hasn't already been spent. It's like trying to navigate a maze blindfolded, partner. We see in the introduction of the white paper, it says that the Internet relies on banks for electronic payments, but that ain't the most reliable way to do things. You see, banks got to play referee when there's a problem, which can make things real slow and expensive. So Satoshi had a solution. Have y'all ever heard of a cryptographic proof? N uh, no, I n never nope, heard of it. can't say that I have, Pinto. No siree, Bob. Okay, let me back up a second. A cryptographic proof is a real fancy term, but it's actually pretty simple when you break it down. Think of it like a secret handshake. You and your amigo have a special way of shaking hands that nobody else knows. And when you shake hands that way, you know that you're talking to the real deal. Now, in the case of digital currencies like Bitcoin... Cryptographic proof is kind of like that secret handshake. It's a way to prove that you own a certain amount of Bitcoin without actually revealing your private key. It's like showing somebody that secret handshake to prove that you're the real deal. So in the white paper, Satoshi writes that what we need is an electronic payment system that don't rely on trust. We need something based on cryptographic proof that'll let any two folks who want to trade with each other do it without having to rely on some fancy pants third party. So the white paper says there's a solution for solving the double spending problem. It talks about using a peer-to-peer -peer distributed timestamp server to prove the order of transactions. All right, that about wraps up the introduction of the white paper. But before we head into the nitty-gritty of transactions, let's mosey on over to chat a bit about wallets. Now, wallets ain't like the ones you keep in your back pocket. 
They're more like digital storage spaces where you keep the keys that can unlock the Bitcoin you have stored on the time chain. Every wallet has a public key, which is like an address, and that's how folks can send you Bitcoin. But here's the real kicker. Every wallet also has a private key, and that's like the key to your safe. You gotta keep that key secure, because if you lose it, you lose your Bitcoin. And let me tell you, that's like losing all the cash you got in your real wallet. It ain't a good feeling. Good Lord, Pinto. Sounds like you can lose your Bitcoin pretty easy. Well now, Slowpoke, don't you go getting your britches in a bunch? Sure, back in the early days of Bitcoin, things were a bit like the Wild West. But you know what? Bitcoin wasn't worth a plugged nickel back then. Over the years, there have been all sorts of Bitcoin improvement proposals like BIP39 that have made it easier for folks to secure their Bitcoin. It's a real game changer, let me tell you. But that goes beyond the scope of this here lecture, partner. We'll have to save that for another day. For now, let's focus on what the white paper has to say about transactions. So, when you want to send Bitcoin to somebody else, you got to sign the transaction with your private key. That way, the network knows you're the rightful owner of those Bitcoin, and it'll let you send them off to whoever you want. But here's the catch. What if you try to send the same Bitcoin to two different folks at the same time? Oh, y y yeah, I know. It was called d double spending, right, Pinto? That's right, Curly. Double spending. And it's a big old problem. Because if you can just copy and paste your Bitcoin all over the place, they still ain't worth a plugged nickel. That's where the time chain comes in and makes Bitcoin so valuable today. See, every time somebody sends some Bitcoin, that transaction gets recorded on the time chain for everybody to see. And each transaction is like a link in a chain with the digital signatures of the previous owner and the next owner. That way, you can see the whole history of that Bitcoin, from the moment it was created to the moment it ended up in your wallet. And if somebody tries to double-spend that Bitcoin, the network will catch them red-handed, because they'll be trying to spend a Bitcoin that's already been spent. Well, how do we know the time chain is accurate, Pinto? That's a good question, Slowpoke. We know it's accurate because there ain't no central authority keeping track of everything. But here's the genius part. Everybody on the network gets a copy of the time chain, and they all keep it up to date by checking each other's work. That way, if somebody tries to mess with the time chain, the other folks on the network will know right away and they'll kick them off. Well, d-d-dang. If everybody has a cut copy of the time chain, then that don't s sound too private for my Bitcoin. Well now, Curly, that's a mighty astute observation, but there are actually methods you can use to protect your privacy on the Bitcoin network. It's a real important issue, and we're going to cover it later on in this here lecture. But let's not get ahead of ourselves, partner. We'll cover the privacy aspects of Bitcoin in due time. So, there you have it, folks. That's how transactions work in the world of Bitcoin. It's a bit like having a bunch of folks checking each other's math homework. But instead of getting graded, you get some sweet, sweet Bitcoin. Y'all have learned a heap about transactions. Now let's round them up and see how these transactions are gathered into blocks and tossed onto the time chain. The solution the white paper proposes begins with something called a timestamp server. This server takes a hash of a block of items to be timestamped and then widely publishes that hash. P -p Pinto, what in the w world is a hash? Well, Curly, a hash is the output of data that is run through a special algorithm. Imagine you got a big old pot of chili simmering over the fire. You put in all sorts of ingredients like ground beef, tomatoes, onions, beans, and spices. And once you got it all cooked up, 
you want to make sure that nobody has messed with your recipe. You can think of a hash as how your chili tastes after cooking. It's a special code that's generated by running your recipe, or in this case, your data, through a special algorithm. Just like how your chili recipe creates a delicious bowl of chili, the algorithm creates a unique code for your data. But here's the important part. If you change even just one little thing in your recipe, the taste of your chili will change. And if you change even just one little thing in your data, the hash will be completely different. So if somebody tries to change your recipe or your data, the hash will show that something's not right. In the case of Bitcoin, each transaction is hashed using a special algorithm called SHA-256. This creates a unique code for each transaction, which is then added to the time chain for all to see. And because the hash is unique to each transaction, it makes it very difficult for someone to change the data without being detected. So you see, Curly, a hash helps keep things secure and tamper-proof. Just like how you wouldn't want anyone messing with your chili recipe, you don't want anyone messing with your Bitcoin transactions. Now this timestamp proves that the data or transactions in the case of Bitcoin must have existed at that specific time to get into the hash. And get this, each timestamp includes the previous timestamp in its hash, forming a chain. Each additional timestamp added reinforces the ones before it. So the idea is to collect all the transactions that have been publicly broadcast and organize them into blocks. These blocks are then timestamped and run through a SHA-256 hashing algorithm, which essentially turns them into a unique string of characters that identify that particular block of transactions. And here's where it gets real smart. Each new block refers back to the previous one in the chain by using the hash value, which makes sure everything is in chronological order. This is what makes the time chain so powerful. It's a chain of blocks all linked together in time. Now don't go thinking that this timestamp server is run by some bigwig in a fancy office. Oh no siree. Traditional timestamp servers are all centralized, but the beauty of the Bitcoin timestamp server mechanism is that it's decentralized. But if some bigwig in a fancy office isn't adding blocks to the time chain, who is? That's a good question, Slowpoke. And the short answer is, Bitcoin miners. But really this is where proof of work comes in. And it just so happens that the next section of the white paper covers it. Y'all remember we talked about how transactions get validated by nodes? Well, it's the miners who gather those validated transactions and put them into blocks on the time chain. And let me tell you, it ain't no easy task. But Pipipinto, there are so many b -b Bitcoin miners. Do they take turns adding the n next block to the time chain? No, Curly. You see, that's where proof of work comes in. It's like a grand puzzle game that happens about every 10 minutes. The miners start with the hash of the previous block, which is the result of the previous puzzle. The first miner to solve the new puzzle has the right to update the time chain with a new block of transactions. Then that new block gets broadcasted to the network and the nodes validate it, and a new puzzle game begins with the new block's hash, using it for the next block of transactions. This way created blocks are all linked together by a chain of hashes and today we call that the time chain. Solving puzzles? Seems like a real waste of time to me, Pinto. Well, Slowpoke, aside from solving the puzzles, Proof of Work is performing some mighty important tasks. Imagine you're a cowboy trying to protect your herd from rustlers. You need to make sure that every cow is accounted for and not stolen away by sneaky bandits. Similarly, the Bitcoin network needs to make sure that every block of transactions is legitimate and not bastardized by fraudulent actors. 
proof of work is like a cowboy's lasso that captures the bad guys and keeps them from stealing your cows. In the case of Bitcoin, it captures fraudulent blocks and keeps them from corrupting the time chain. However, if the bad guys put in more work to solve the puzzles than the good guys, they could only reverse recent transactions they themselves had the private keys to. But I'm here to tell you, this is a very costly thing to do, and there ain't enough bad guys to go around to pull it off. The good Lord provides many more good guys than bad guys in this world. Anyways, once the bad guys find out they can make a heap more money expending their efforts on legitimate Bitcoin mining than trying to steal, you watch them switch their cowboy hat from black to white faster than a jackrabbit in a pepper patch. At the same time, proof-of-work mining is facilitating money being sent all over the world without any intermediaries. Isn't that neat? It's like killing two birds with one stone. So, y'all see, proof-of-work is the backbone of the Bitcoin network. And without it, we wouldn't have the decentralized system we know and love today. Now, in the next part of this wonderful white paper, we're going to put all the pieces together and take a grand gander at the entire Bitcoin network. Now, I know we've already talked about transactions, verifying them, and how they get into blocks, but what does this network look like as a whole? In some ways, this section is sort of a review of some things we've already learned. So, the network works like this. First off, any new transactions that are created get broadcast to all the nodes in the network. Then, each node collects these new transactions and puts them into a block. After that, each node starts working on finding a real tough proof of work for their block. Oh, I know. That's Bitcoin mining, right, Papinto? That's right, Curly. And once a miner finds that proof of work, they broadcast the block to all the other nodes. And those other nodes only accept the block if all the transactions in it are valid and ain't already been spent. Then, those nodes get to work creating the next block in the chain using the hash of the accepted block as the previous hash. Now nodes always think the longest chain is the right one and keep working on extending it. So if two nodes happen to broadcast different versions of the next block at the same time, some nodes might receive one or the other first. But in that case, they'll work on the first one they got and save the other branch just in case it becomes longer. And if there's ever a tie, it'll be broken when the next proof of work is found and one branch becomes longer. Then, the nodes that were working on the other branch will switch to the longer one. And here's a fun fact. New transaction broadcasts don't necessarily have to reach all the nodes. As long as they get to enough nodes, they'll get added to a block before long. And even if a node misses a block broadcast, they'll get it when they connect back to the network. Boy, Pinto, I admit I'm getting a little lost in the weeds here. Why would anyone use something so complicated? Well, now, Slowpoke... I know all this talk about Bitcoin may seem a mite overwhelming, but believe you me, it's simpler than you might reckon. You don't have to be knee-deep in Bitcoin mining or running nodes just to hold or spend your Bitcoin. The point is, Bitcoin wouldn't work without the network of nodes and the proof-of-work consensus mechanism keeping everyone honest and incentivized. So understanding how the network works is key to understanding how Bitcoin works overall. Well, partners, in this next section of the white paper, we'll be talking about incentives. It's these incentives that keep the Bitcoin network humming along, and I reckon you'll find it mighty interesting. Now, y'all might be wondering why in tarnation would miners go through all that ruckus and spend a pretty penny on fancy computer thingamajigs just to mine bitcoins? Well, I'll tell you, it's all about that sweet reward waiting at the end of the line. You see, once the miners agree on a block... They add a special transaction right smack dab at the start of that block, called the Coinbase transaction. 
It's like a secret handshake with the Bitcoin gods. This transaction doles out some shiny, brand spanking new Bitcoin to the lucky miner who done solved the puzzle and created that block. It's a way to say, hey partner, good job. Here's your cut for all the sweat you put into it. And it also helps us distribute Bitcoin into circulation because there ain't no fancy pants central authority to dish them out. But hold your horses, folks. That ain't all. Every transaction in that block comes with a wee little transaction fee like a tip of the hat. This fee, it goes right into the pocket of the winning miner, too. So they get a double whammy of rewards, both the freshly minted Bitcoin and the transaction fees. Now here's where it gets real interesting. Once a set number of them coins, exactly 21 million to be exactin', have found their way into the wild, the game changes. The incentive shifts, my friends. Instead of minting new coins, we start relying solely on them transaction fees. It's like when gold miners done dug up all the nuggets from the riverbed, so they start charging folks for panning in their claim. You see, this whole shebang helps keep everyone honest. Let's say some varmint with a heart full of greed manages to round up more computer power than all the honest nodes combined. Now he's got a choice to make. Does he want to use that power to steal back his own payments like a low-down bandit? Or does he want to use it to generate new coins fair and square? Well, I reckon he's smarter than he looks. He'll figure out it's more profitable to play by the rules. After all, the rules favor him with more shiny new Bitcoin than anyone else put together. It's like when you're playing poker and you know the deck's stacked in your favor. Why would you want to go messing with the cards? So there you have it, folks. Incentives are the name of the game in Bitcoin. We're rewarding the miners for their hard work with fresh coins and the transaction fees. And once we've sprinkled enough coins around, it's going to be all about the fees. Now in Section 7, that clever dude Satoshi Nakamoto delves into the art of reclaiming disk space. Now this here is a topic worth wrangling with, as it shines a light on an important aspect that ain't been implemented in the Bitcoin system to this day. Satoshi had a real hankering to save disk space, and rightly so. See, every ten minutes a new block is added to the time chain. That's a hefty load, I tell you. Back in the early days, when there weren't as many transactions, the blocks were smaller. But as the years rolled on, that blockchain grew like a sturdy oak tree. To tackle this challenge, Satoshi had a clever plan. He aimed to reduce the size of the time chain by removing old transactions that have served their purpose. Now, the way he accomplished this was through a nifty structure called a Merkle tree. A Merkle tree? What's that, Pinto? Well, Curly, it's a way of structuring hashes to verify the storage of data. Picture a tree, with its leaves spread out in all their glory. That's how transactions were stored within a block, in an organized order akin to the leaves on a tree. But here's where the magic happens. Satoshi knew that he could trim the branches of this tree without disrupting the whole dang thing. How? Well, he computed hashes for each level of the tree, from the leaves up to the root. And by doing so, he could discard some transactions without tampering with the main hash. Just like pruning a tree by snipping off leaves and branches that ain't needed no more. Now the idea was to only include the root of this Merkle tree in the block's hash, while the interior hashes could be tossed aside. This way, when enough blocks bury the latest transaction, those spent transactions that came before it could be thrown out like yesterday's trash. It's a way to save disk space without breaking a sweat over the block's hash integrity. But Satoshi had a hitch in his giddy-up. 
You see, while we share the Bitcoin time chain with other nodes, pruning nodes could introduce trust back into the system. If a newer node gets a trimmed down time chain, well, it's got to trust the node that handed it over. But we shouldn't need to trust no one when it comes to having a full copy of the time chain. A node should begin right from that first block, checking and verifying all the way up to the latest block without needing to place trust in anyone else. In a nutshell, folks, this section of the white paper sheds light on the importance of reclaiming disk space in the Bitcoin network. Satoshi Nakamoto had a clever plan with them Merkle trees and pruning the time chain, but it never quite made its way into the actual Bitcoin software. Instead, full nodes can take charge with their UTXO databases and operate in pruning mode, keeping the disk space in check while verifying transactions like nobody's business. So there you have it, partners. That's the lowdown on Section 7 of the Bitcoin white paper. Disk space may be a challenge, heck. It even sparked a great big block-size war. But the Bitcoin network finds ways to wrangle it and keep on chugging along. Remember, it's all about adapting and innovating to stay ahead of the curve. Now let's wrangle this Section 8 of the Bitcoin white paper, shall we? Simplified Payment Verification, or SPV for short, is a nifty way to verify payments without going all out and running a full network node. You see, not everyone has the time or the fancy supercomputing power to be a full-on verifier of transactions. Some folks just want to send and receive their bitcoins with a simple bitcoin wallet. And that's where SPV comes riding in to save the day. The key to SPV is linking a transaction to a place in the time chain. And you can do that by querying the longest chain of blocks and pulling out the Merkle branch where that transaction is sitting. Oh yeah, from the Mu Merkle tree. That's a way of structuring hashes to verify the storage of data. Right, Pinto? That's right, Curly. If you can link a transaction to a place in the time chain, you can trust that the transaction has been stamped with the network's approval. And when more blocks get added to that chain, well, it just further confirms that the network has accepted it with open arms. Now there's a little something you need to keep in mind. This verification method relies on honest nodes calling the shots in the network. But if an attacker gets all riled up and starts overpowering the network, well, things can get a tad trickier. You see, this simplified method can be fooled by an attacker's phony transactions as long as that attacker holds the upper hand in power. Sneaky, ain't it? Oh boy, Bitcoin sounds mighty vulnerable, Pinto. Now hold your horses there, Slowpoke. Don't you go fretting none. There's a strategy to protect against such shenanigans. One idea is to accept alerts from the network nodes. If these nodes detect an invalid block, they send out an alert, like a good old engine smoke signal. When your software catches wind of such an alert, it can download the full block and the alerted transactions to confirm the inconsistency. It's like a digital posse riding in to bring law and order back to the Bitcoin frontier. Now, for them businesses that receive payments left and right, it might be wise to run their own nodes for some extra security and faster verification. It gives them more independence and helps them stay on the ball. But for the everyday folks just dipping their toes into the Bitcoin revolution, these simplified payment verification wallets, or thin wallets as some call them, do the job just fine. No need for a hefty computer setup or a pile of cash. It's easy as pie. So, my friends, that's the gist of Section 8. Simplified payment verification is the name of the game when it comes to checking the validity of the Bitcoin transactions without running a full network node. Section 9 covers how value is split and combined in the Bitcoin world. 
You see, in Bitcoin, you can split up the value of coins and combine them to make larger amounts. Kind of like melting down two pieces of gold to make a larger piece. So, when you want to send a particular amount of Bitcoin, you gather them little pieces to make up the whole shebang. To pull this off, that smart feller, Satoshi Nakamoto, came up with one of the greatest ideas in this here white paper. The UTXO model of transacting Bitcoin. UTXO model? What in Tatarnation Pinto? Well, Curly, UTXO stands for Unspent Transaction Output. Your UTXOs are the result of payments you receive in your wallet, like freshly minted coins with exacting amounts. Let's say you got yourself a fancy Bitcoin wallet with three unspent transaction thingamajigs that add up to 0.5 Bitcoin. Them UTXOs are like your coins, each with a different value. Now let's say you want to send 0.38 Bitcoin to Brenda, bless her heart. But hold your horses, cowboy. You don't just send that precise amount lickety-split. What you do is you gather your available UTXOs as whole pieces to make up that payment. So the Bitcoin protocol comes in, your wallet picks two input transactions with a combined value of at least 0.38 Bitcoin. Maybe it takes a 0.15 Bitcoin UTXO and a 0.27 Bitcoin from another UTXO, adding up to a total of 0.42 Bitcoin. And here's where the magic happens, partner. The protocol creates two new output transactions. One goes to Brenda with the exact amount of 0.38 Bitcoin, and the other one swings right back to you, returning the change like a boomerang, totaling 0.04 Bitcoin. It's like paying for your groceries with a combination of bills and coins and getting back the change in a single bill. That's how this here Bitcoin network keeps things running smooth and easy, making them transactions as sweet as a peach cobbler on a summer day. But who's got time for all that splitting and combining, Pinto? Sounds complicated. Now don't you go fussing, Slowpoke. Your regular old Bitcoin wallet takes care of all them fancy calculations for the everyday Joe. Imagine you log into your bank account, and what do you see? A fancy balance right there on your screen. But let me tell you, that money ain't really sitting in the bank. It's just a bunch of numbers playing tricks on your eyes. But here's the beauty of Bitcoin, my friend. When you log into your Bitcoin wallet, that money you see, it's the real deal. It's sitting right where your wallet tells you it is. No smoke and mirrors, no funny business. Just good old transparent truth. Now, as for the advanced folks, they can get themselves a wallet that keeps a close eye on their UTXOs. Because it's all about privacy, my friend. See, with the right wallet, you can make the most out of the privacy features of the Bitcoin protocol. Ain't that something? And speaking of privacy, I'm going to dive deep into part 10 of the Bitcoin white paper, where we'll unravel the secrets of privacy in the Bitcoin world. You see, nowadays, traditional banks keep our transaction history and balances private by limiting access to their centralized databases. On October 31, 2008, that sharp dude Satoshi Nakamoto come along bright as a new penny and pointed out there was too much dang trust in the system. So he flipped that model like a flapjack with Bitcoin. You see, in the Bitcoin network, all transactions are publicly announced, meaning anyone can see them. But don't you fret because Satoshi had a solution. He suggested keeping public keys anonymous in order to maintain privacy. It's like wearing a mask at a fancy ball. You can see who's dancing with who, but you don't know their true identities. Well, now let me tell you folks, Satoshi was one smart cookie. 
He knew that privacy was important when it came to money. And he had another trick up his sleeve to keep our transactions on the down low. He suggested using a new key pair for every transaction, which means that each time you send or receive some Bitcoin, it's coming through a new public key. And that makes it tough for anyone to trace your Bitcoin address all the way back to its history. So, while the public can still see that someone's sending some money around, they can't connect it to anyone in particular. It's like trying to catch smoke with your bare hands. Smart thinking, if you ask me. Now, I know some folks might think that all this talk about privacy is just for folks who've got something to hide. But let me tell you, privacy is a fundamental right, and it's especially important when it comes to your money. Just like you wouldn't want strangers prying into your bank account, you shouldn't want them snooping around your Bitcoin transactions either. When it comes to money, you can never be too careful. With Bitcoin, you've got the power to take control of your finances and keep them private. So saddle up, stay informed, and always protect your privacy. Well, now that about wraps it up for my Bitcoin white paper lecture series. The rest is just a bunch of fancy calculations and the conclusion. Thank you kindly for sitting in with me and all my buddies. October 31st ain't just for goblins and ghouls, it's a day to celebrate the birth of Bitcoin. Adios, amigos.